The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I ever should come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Robert Frost's infamous poem is a telling of a traveler surveying two roads, two paths. The Gospel of Mark is also a disciple's dilemma in travel. Which way do I go? If the roads had signs, these two roads had signs, they would maybe read this way. To the right, the sign reads the wide way and it's six lanes and it's downhill and there's lots of others heading down that path. There's lots of lights, there's lots of laughter, there's little luxuries. It looks amazing. To the left, the sign reads narrow way. It's much darker. It's uphill. You can hardly see the path. It's somewhat claustrophobic and constricted. And you only see a few set of footprints. And you're not exactly sure where it ends. But you know it's headed uphill. Someone is even turning back on that narrow way path. And they're catching you contemplating which way you go. And they say, you know what? It's not worth it. Don't even think about going that way. Which way do you go? And why? Take the wide way. The way we all like and the way the world likes. Or you take the narrow way. The way of love. Today in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, the King, leads the way down the road which would make all the difference. The way of love. And he calls anyone who would consider themselves disciples to follow him on that road. The narrow way road we'll take throughout the passage this morning will take in three legs. As I read the first reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is God's word. And it is true. The first leg of the narrow way is this. It's a voluntary path. It's not a victim's prison. We saw in verse 32, the disciples and Jesus, they're on the road. And whenever that phrase on the road is used in Mark, it's also translated they were on the way. The way to the original audience of Mark was code for a Christ follower. Those who were part of the way, the way of Jesus. And where is the way leading We see to Jerusalem, to the capital city of God, where Jesus, who thus far has stirred the religious leaders up with his claims to be the Christ, the son of God, to the point where they are set to kill him. That's where they live in Jerusalem. This is the third foretelling Jesus is making about his death and his resurrection. But it's uniquely different from the first two. And what's uniquely different about this one to the first two is Jesus's position. Do you see this in verse 32? He's walking ahead of them. He's leading the way to death. Why does Mark want us to see this? Well, let's look at it this way. What if I were to tell you, when you leave this place today, there's going to be a set of priests outside those doors. And those priests outside those doors are going to handcuff you as soon as you leave this place. There's going to be a crowd around them who are going to call you and boo and hiss at you. You are evil, all of you all sainters. They're going to taser you, actually, when you go out there. They're going to strip you, take all your clothes off. They're going to post all of that on social media, everybody. Everyone's going to see it, okay? Then they're going to take you to uh, the courthouse, probably after the doors are closed. And they're going to sit you before a corrupt judge who's going to call you guilty. And then he's going to sentence you to be thrown off of Tower Drive Bridge where you'll drown. Until three days later, someone's going to pull you from the bottom of the Fox River and resuscitate you back to life. Show of hands, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first out those doors? Not a one of us. All three of the predictions Jesus makes about his death were so his disciples could see. He is not a victim of circumstances. He is not a victim of chance. The narrow way that Jesus took was voluntary. No one forces him to go there. He puts himself ahead of them and willing to go to that place of death for them. That's why the disciples were amazed. You're going out that door. And the crowds are terrified. He's going out that door. He, the Christ, is making a willful choice to die. Who would choose to follow me on that way, he says. During World War II, 
in a prisoner of war camp in Japan. A man named Ernest Gordon, he was a Scottish military man, but he became a prisoner of war. He tells the story of the missing shovel. Gordon and his fellow prisoners were slave laborers to the Japanese who were forcing them to construct a railroad line. And at one checkpoint, the Japanese commander began screaming in Japanese and raging, holding up a shovel saying, one of these is missing. And so he lined all of the prisoners up and he waved his gun around at them. And said to them, unless someone admits to stealing the shovel, you are all going to die. They're all lined up, ready, as his gun's waving. And one man takes this moment to step forward and admit, I'm the one who took the shovel. Doesn't say that, just steps forward. And the commander who was holding the shovel in his hands beats the man down with the shovel till he is dead. And it was only until the next checkpoint that they discovered there had been a miscalculation. All the shovels were completely accounted for. This man volunteered his death for the preservation of all his fellow prisoners' lives. This is the narrow way that Jesus is leading. It's a voluntary path. It's a stepping forward. It's not a victim's prison. Christians, Christians, are you a victim or a volunteer when it comes to following the narrow way? Do you complain about your Christian life more than you rejoice in it? Do you defend yourself more than come to the aid of another Do you speak of your circumstances with a woe is me? Or do you speak of it with an amen, may it be? The victim narrative, friends, never passes off of Jesus' lips, ever. Why? Because he knows that all things, including his death, will work together for good. Following Christ down this first leg toward Jerusalem, this voluntary path, means standing in amazement at his determination, his focus, his setting his face like flint to Jerusalem because he loves the will of God and he loves others more than himself. The will of God that sees others more important than oneself. Friends, thy will be done is the voluntary song of those along the narrow way. Where are you refusing to sing? Where is the Lord calling you to step forward and die to your own way? Get off the world's wide road and head with him on this uphill journey toward Jerusalem. To the place where you become least, but God's will and God's glory become most. The first leg is a voluntary path, not a victim's prison. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, 
Grant to us that we sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will baptize. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. And it is true. The second leg of the narrow way leads down the road of self-sacrifice. Not down a glory road of celebrity. James and John, they see Jesus heading toward the doors, volunteering himself. And true to their name, which means sons of thunder, they believe they're in a scene from Braveheart. They catch up to, the, to Jesus. They want in on the action. Jesus is going to die a hero. Teacher, they say, do something for us. And Jesus asks, what, what do you want? This is a question Jesus asks throughout the Gospels, and it's a question he needs to ask each one of us today because it cuts to the heart of every single one of our motivations. Tim, what do you want? Amanda, what do you want? Angie, what do you want from Jesus? What do they say? We want a share of your glory. We want celebrity status. We want the wide road, not the way of love. How, how do we know that? Because the wide road is all about self-promotion and self-love. The narrow road, the way of love, is about self-sacrifice. Jesus asks them if they're able to drink the cup he's about to drink or be plunged into the waters he's about to dive into. And they ignorantly say, we are able we got this. We are something. How in the world do they answer that? James and John are thinking, I think, their brave heart status leads to kingly rewards. Their strong personalities lead to kingly rewards. What are those kingly rewards? Cups overflowing with a king's wine. Waters of kingly spas and baths to be baptized or washed in. That's what they're thinking this looks like, this road. It's a road to a throne room. It's a road to royalty. But Jesus' cup that he's speaking of is a cup of drinking God's anger over sin. Jesus' baptism that Jesus is speaking about is God's judgment like Noah's day in drowning the guilty in the weight of their sin. The rest of the disciples, 
They hear about this. They hear this conversation and they are ticked that James and John butted in line. They're not righteous. They're just mad they didn't get to him first, probably. Jesus makes it in his compassion and care for his disciples. Such a teaching moment. He doesn't condemn the two, but he instead instructs the twelve. He says to them, basically, you've seen a lot of celebrity in Jerusalem among the Gentiles. You've seen kings of the castle. You've seen Putins of the palace. But friends, that's not the Jerusalem we're headed for. Greatness is going to come through leastness. First place is going to come with taking last place in this new Jerusalem. For even the Son of Man, the greatest image of a king who would rule over the people of the world in the prophet Daniel's vision, he came to be a servant. He came to be a slave. How? Jesus says this. By giving his life as a ransom. As the bail money for freeing prisoners. The price of pulling out slaves is who Jesus became. Celebrity, fame, fortune, it's all self-love. But sacrifice, selflessness, and offering, that's all God's love. This pursuit we see of celebrity in James and John, oh, you see it in the church world, unfortunately. Celebrity pastors... And ministry leaders, men and women who build large buildings, large ministries, have huge podcast followings, publish multiple publications in the name of Jesus, sitting themselves at his right and his left, not so that his name can be glorified, but so that they too can be glorified. So they can drink from the cup of fame and bathe in the blessing of people's blood money. But by God's grace... To them even, many of them have fallen and fallen hard. I actually have a book on my shelf that I read maybe three or four years ago that has on the back four celebrities, four celebrity pastors putting their stamp of approval on this book. And guess what? Three of those four in four years have already fallen. Because their celebrity is based on externals, not the heart. One author writes, The light shining on them was far brighter than the light shining within them. Jesus, the king of creation, is promoting a way of love which involves being made smaller, not bigger. Dimmer, not brighter. It says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want us to allow the Lord to shine a light on our hearts this morning. Friends, are you using Jesus so you can get ahead and get heaven? Or are you following Jesus, the ransom of heaven, as a living sacrifice so that others might live. Friends, when you do something in Jesus' name, are you co-signing it so that others can see that it was him and you who did that? 
Or are you content with no one ever knowing your name, but only knowing his? Following Jesus on the narrow way means you love so deeply what Christ has done for you. How Christ has saved you. That you would give up your seat at the table. So that your worst enemy could feast next to him on his love. The narrow way is a road of self-sacrifice. Not a path of celebrity. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, who was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, his outer garment, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. And it is true. The final leg of the journey. The narrow way sets its sights on our need for mercy. And not our love for more. Just unpack this real quick as we close. They arrive at Jericho, the disciples and the crowd. Jericho is the lowest inhabited town on the planet. That's such a picture of the place the Son of Man was willing to go to raise us up. Because <laughs> it's all uphill from there. It's a 20-mile uphill climb to Jerusalem, to the suffering, to the cross, to the death. And as Jesus volunteers his way up the narrow path of sacrifice, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, whose name means son of the unclean, he begins screaming. Promised king, promised king, will you help me? And the crowd responds and the disciples respond by rebuking him. It's used again in Mark. Like casting out a demon, quiet. As the people who want a celebrity king try to keep this guy quiet. Try to usher this homeless bum out of the way. Much like China does to its homeless population during the Olympics. They pop him on a bus and send them away from the main city so they can't be seen in NBC's glorious images of the Olympic Games. But it doesn't work to quiet this man. It just makes him all the more insistent and loud. Promised king, promised king, please help me. And Jesus calls the son of the unclean to come. 
And Bartimaeus leaps up, leaving behind his outer cloak. Why is that important? Well, friends, a beggar's outer cloak is their wallet. Because it's spread. Their outer cloak is spread around them in order to catch people's coins. He's leaving behind his livelihood. He doesn't have a love for more of this money. His eyes are set on his need for mercy. And he leaps up and springs toward Jesus. Notice Jesus asks the man the same question he asked of James and John. Only this time he receives an answer that ironically shows that this man who's blind sees Jesus better than his disciples who are sighted. Because he sees Jesus to be the way of mercy. The way of need. James and John want something from Jesus. Bartimaeus needs something from Jesus. Instead of presuming on Jesus to give me what I want, he sets his eyes on the source of mercy, God himself, and he requests, permit me please to see again. And unlike Jesus' deferral of James and John's demand, what pours out of Jesus in that moment? You see that I am a merciful God. Here's my mercy. The blind man sets his eyes upon the king of mercy, of help, of compassion. And what happens? His eyes open to see, there's your mercy. It's Jesus. And what does he do? What does Bartimaeus do? What does it say at the end of that passage? Where does he go? Jesus says, go on your way. And where does he go? He follows the king on his way, on the narrow road, on the voluntary path to sacrifice to Jerusalem. Friends, when we take our eyes off of the mercy of Christ and our need for his mercy, what happens to us? We become religious, we become self-righteous, we become blind guides. But when we set our eyes on the mercy of Christ to us, undeserving, victim narrating, celebrating, celebrity seeking, sinful, self-loving people, Christ has mercy on us. He forgives us and he makes us well. Where else are we to go when he makes us well, but in the same direction that he's leading? The way of mercy, the way of sacrifice, the way of your will be done. Friends, set your sights on his mercy toward you. I remember when I was taking motorcycle lessons, how the concept of setting your eyes on something way ahead of you was so important. When I was learning how to ride a motorcycle, and I was, you know, it's on the TC, on NWTC's parking lot, I'm a little scared. This is a pretty heavy piece of machinery. And they'd have me turn these tight turns, and there were people falling all over the place. We were trying to take these turns, and we just kept dropping the bikes. Didn't know what was going on. And the instructor was so wise in telling us, you can't look at the circumstances around you. You can't even look at the road right in front of you. You have to look to where you're going. You have to look to where you're going. If you set your eyes on where you're going, the end of the turn, you're not going to have any issues. And sure thing, it would happen. That as I set my eyes on the turn, there it went. There I was. 
Jesus is wanting them to set their eyes not only on the cross, but on the resurrection that's coming following him. The mercy that's going to be shown not only in his cross, but in the resurrection to come. New life ahead of them. We need to set our eyes on the mercy of God, the cross and his resurrection given to us in order for us to keep on this narrow way. John Calvin writes, wisdom comes from two things. An understanding of ourselves and an understanding of God. When we know who we are and the condition we are in, Bartimaeus's unclean sinners, blind beggars, we have no choice but to cry out to the only one who can help us, the God of all mercies. We can set our eyes upon him in our sin. And say, come to my need. That's where I'm putting my eyes on this narrow way. I'm not going to play the victim on the victim's road anymore. I'm not going to play the what's in it for me on the road. I'm not going to play, can I be a celebrity with you, Jesus? No, what I need is your mercy. That is what I need. I will follow you to where you go, to that cross. Knowing that what you promise beyond it, that resurrection is true as well. I wonder if Bartimaeus had the opportunity to set his newly healed eyes upon the king of love and mercy crucified. That's probably one of the first things he was able to really see. Close with this. I realize I'm taking a little bit of liberty and speculation on this one, but imagine this with me. What if Bartimaeus... The son of an unclean sinner, the blind beggar, the one who was cast off by the world onto the side of the road, the one who was rejected, the one who had little value in our wide world of productivity, celebrity, profitability, usefulness, and effective time management. That wasn't Bartimaeus. What if this guy is seated at the right hand of Jesus? What would that say about the king? What would that say about our king? If he's the one sitting at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. Then what would it say about us in following the way to his kingdom? We can come as we are. With that image in mind, we might even be more ready to volunteer ourselves on the way out those doors, on the way to suffering. Would you be willing to trade your self-love for the road of self-sacrifice, of laying down our outer garments so that others might live? Would we have our eyes set upon that kind of mercy, that king of mercy, instead of our world of more and mine and me? Jesus is inviting us to join him To a new Jerusalem where unclean sinners have been made clean, have been shown mercy, have been forgiven by his death, and have been raised to new life by his resurrection. He's inviting us to see that throne room and to see who sits at his right and his left are not anyone who deserves it, but undeserving, unclean mercy-receiving sinners. 
Are you wanting to follow him? It begins with a narrow way. Volunteering our lives as a sacrifice. Setting our eyes upon his mercy. And taking up a cross to extend that mercy to those around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make holy your name. Make holy your name in our lives. Set us apart as people who face suffering not as victims, but who face suffering as volunteers, knowing that our suffering is leading to a greater end. Set us apart and make holy your name and us being those who self-sacrifice, who don't give a rip about celebrity or being noticed. Set us apart so that your son and his name is the only thing that's noticeable in our lives. And Father, set our eyes on your mercy on the cross and the resurrection. Two things promised to us. Forgiveness and new life. Keep our eyes off of the circumstances right in front of us. <laughs> and fix our eyes on our hope, Jesus Christ himself. Do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.